even my ganti. George. And Bob, let me, you got in early tonight. Good for you. It, you're getting better and better at technology. You got to turn, unmute, you're muted. You're asking too much. I'm asking too much of George. I'm asking too much of Bob, huh, Lucas? <laughs> Face now. Ask, ask Paul. He received my second email. I told him to frame it. Uh, <laughs> very, very proud of you, Bob. Yeah. Told me yet. Uh, look at who's everybody. Almost every call is here. Anthony. Yep. Very good. Uh, let's see. Rock. How are you? Yeah. Very good, John. I see you. Paul, let's see. Lucas, Stephen. All right, we're just waiting. I think we're waiting for a few others. But it's only five to seven. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Here we are, session seven, right smack in the middle. I know. It goes fast. Doesn't it go fast? Yeah. yeah. That's fast enough. <laughs> what? Who said that? <laughs> but, but we're having so much fun. Yeah, we is fast. Seven weeks already. Yep. The next paper's due next week, right? Uh, that's correct. So we have next week and then we, um, I'll, I'll make this announcement again when everybody's here. But, you know, as you know, St. Patrick's Day has always been a national holiday for the Archdiocese. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I never had that day off until I worked for New York. But um, actually, I only found out uh, at my last faculty meeting that we were supposed to schedule classes. They revised the calendar. But I didn't look ahead. Um, so um, since we have no class scheduled, we're keeping it that we are not having class. I, I got that okay by Father Ernest. Um, and we didn't take Ash Wednesday off as some did. So um, St. Patrick's Day, you're, you don't have, we don't have class. And I'll be recuperating anyway from my second vaccine. I'll <laughs> because I your second one is the 16th. That's right. So uh, that's I. So I didn't want to schedule, reschedule our class, and then have to say forget it. So um, we're keeping it as a day off. Hi, Doug. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Since we have off, and I know this probably might come up later. Uh huh. But since we have off on the 17th, can we hand on our paper by the 17th? Have an extra week to do it? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'll make.
no to that. Okay, thank you. Second paper, good. And, um, I'll make sure I tell everybody that as well. Is it up then? Instead of 10, it be the 17th, not the 24th, the 17th. Oh, okay, James, good. <laughs> good. Good suggestion, better planning. Yes. Is that for all of us? No, yeah. just for me. <laughs> just for yeah. Jim. Just for the Irish. Jim's the governor. Just for the Irish. Just no, that's not fair. No, just for the ticket. Uh, Raphael, I see his picture. I don't just see him. Daniel, how are you? Daniel Castro. Who's this up here? Oh, uh, that looks like Chris Greer's room. Very good. All right, we still have a minute or so. Dr. Eschenauer, you said you used to do four papers and now you cut it to three? I did. Last year I cut it to three midstream. Would there be an opportunity to do one for extra credit or no? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you're doing fine, don't worry. Uh, what I did was I added the extra points to the final. That's what I did midstream last year because it, it started, you know, I just, you know, this was a newly designed course last year. Uh, when I used to teach it in a different format, I used to uh, give um, more of a paper assignment, but I changed it because I wanted students to learn how to do integration work. And so originally I put four and made the final worth less points, but then midway last year, I just felt that it was three was enough. You know, so that's, so don't worry about it. You're, you're all doing good, better than good. <laughs> that, no worries, you don't have to worry about anything. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your enthusiasm, Stephen, though. Hi, Bill. How are you, Bill? Father O'Neill always let us do papers for extra credit. He did? Uh, that's because he teaches undergrads. <laughs> Steve, Steve, why? Isn't it tax season? Yeah. I don't Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I think he's just looking for work. Like you, Todd, I'm getting burnt out. Yeah, I, I don't want to give you a hi, Stephen, the other Stephen Nyer. Victoria, how are you? Good. Daniel Cornell, I see your picture. I'm uh, here, I'm here. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, have a good night, everybody. And I see the other Dan. We have three Dan, yes, Daniel Condon. Very good. There you go. All right, so Daniel Condon, Doug, Chris Greer, Bill, James, Stephen, Stephen, Paul is here, Victoria, Daniel Castro, George, Daniel Cornell, Rock, Lucas. Is Vince here? Yes, I am. Oh, there you are. I see you. I just got in. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> no, no, that's good. You're okay. Uh, Anthony's here, Raphael and John, and Bob, who got in early tonight, everybody. That's good. All right, so just a few um, little bit of housekeeping business. Uh, 
before you all got in, we were having some conversation. Um, number one, your next integration paper, which on the syllabus is due for next week. By popular demand, um, it can be due on the 17th. <laughs> By midnight. And we do not have class on the 17th. This is St. Patrick's Day, is it? Yes. However, I just want you to know if you're talking to any of your friends in other classes, as I explained uh, before you all got on, uh, we have never had classes on St. Patrick's Day, but this year the calendar was revised and they put classes in. But I only looked at January and February and I didn't get to March. Um, and, and plus, when I designed my syllabus, I did it in December when it still said no classes. So anyway, um, my um, superior uh, said that I can keep it as no class, but, but my point in letting you know that if you're talking to some of your friends, they might have class that night, but we do not. So you can use that time to do your next integration paper and it won't be due until that day by midnight. Is that kind of what you meant, Jim? Yes, that Good. works, perfect. All right, perfect. All right. This is, this is a great time to send out the uh, the uh, survey for the class doctor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just feel we're, we're all adults here, you're grad students, and um, my job is to um, to teach you and to help you get through this. Um, but you see how I grade. I'm not that um, I'm, I'm not that easy. Um, <laughs> um, I just want you to learn. That's all. Now I do realize. Um, the syllabus, I really should send you a revised, because we are a week ahead because of my poor planning in the beginning, but I have it on my to-do list, which is pages long at this point, to just give you a cleaner copy of this, but I think you're following it okay. Uh, but it just for, because uh, my copy is a mess, but um, you're, you're all doing okay. All right, Doctor. so that's that. Yes, Doctor Howard, my video yeah. keeps on stopping and starting, but I'm okay. Okay. Why? All right, that's do your best. I know I hear you. I know you're there. Good. Good. Thank you for letting me know, though. Yes. All right. So, um, as we start tonight, uh, let me just get this. My notes. Uh, what I would like to do for our prayer slash reflection is read a little bit of the word, reflect on um, a little bit of uh, words from Pope Francis. Um, but uh, as we begin all classes, uh, really trying to leave behind the rest of the day and everything that we will go back to when we finish tonight and just be present uh, to each other and to the course material. Um, so we remember that we are all together and we're thankful for that, this opportunity and that we can keep our sense of humor during this time of pandemic and of being um, having to be in class via Zoom. 
which for some it's a blessing, for some they wish they were in, um, in person. But uh, whatever the case, we are very grateful um, for this time together that we have. And so for prayer tonight, I'm reading paragraph 120, if you just want to make note of it, but try to just listen to the words, Pope Francis's words about missionary disciples. In virtue of their baptism, all the members of the people of God have become missionary disciples. All the baptized, whatever their position in the church or their level of instruction in the faith, are agents of evangelization. And it would be insufficient to envision a plan of evangelization to be carried out by professionals while the rest of the faithful would simply be passive recipients. The new evangelization calls for personal involvement on the part of each of the baptized. Every Christian is challenged here and now to be actively engaged in evangelization. Amen. Amen. Uh, this is really a carryover of uh, what we talked about last week, but I think um, the words of Pope Francis are really profound here. And when we were talking about evangelization, it even came up in class that it's everybody, and that's exactly what he's saying. Um, and all the more that we have to make everybody aware um, as, as um, parish leaders, pastoral leaders, we need to make everybody aware of their call uh, in and through their baptism. Uh, to me, that's one of uh, the most important things we can do for people, particularly during this time of Lent. Uh, keep this in mind. Lent, um, historically, from the ancient church, it was developed as a time for catechumens to prepare intensely for uh, initiation into the church. With the reform of the Second Vatican Council, the original meaning of Lent was put into practice. Meaning, number one, yes, it is a time, a penitential time. Everybody knows that. But people are not, not always aware that it's a time to prepare for baptism. And for the catechumen, the unbaptized, that is that uh, we we're familiar with that, particularly if we're uh, uh, familiar with the Christian initiation of adults. But for those of us who are already baptized, Lent is a time for us to prepare to renew our baptismal promises at the Easter vigil and throughout the Easter season. That is a point that's often missed. And it's such a wonderful opportunity. And I could count on one hand, and this is an observation, not a judgment, but I can count on one hand how many homilies during Lent I've heard that even mention the word baptism. But it's a really important point that we shouldn't forget, that twofold character. Penitential, yes, but why? Because we are looking to renew something that we already have. 
and that is our baptism, and that, in the words of Pope Francis, is to renew our call to be missionary disciples. That's profound. Could you imagine if everybody knew that? We would have a whole new world um, by the time we get to the Easter season and beyond. Uh, but this is something that you can't mention it just once. It like it has to be, you know, we have to be consistent and remind people year after year after year. We need to be reminded of this. But anyway, I just put that out there for you, um, that in your circles, even in your own home, that you make that a reality, that uh, baptism is very much, should be very much on our minds, our own baptism uh, during the season of Lent. So here we go, session seven. Uh, I took this picture, it's not very clear, I apologize, but I uh, was at the parish where my husband worked out on Long Island, um, and uh, right in the, in the um, entryway, when you walk in the front doors of the church, there it is, the parish mission statement, right up there. Um, and this is Our Lady of Mercy Parish in Hicksville, and it's right there. As members of Our Lady of Mercy Parish family, our mission is to practice the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. And then on the two sides, I couldn't get the full, but it actually lists uh, the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. So I couldn't resist. I wanted to show you that because last week we were talking about how the mission statement needs to be right there for people to see everywhere. And uh, this is one of the first churches I've ever seen where it has been so beautifully um, displayed, you know? Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to show you that as... Um, Dr. Eschenauer? Yes. Do you know how long that they've had that? Um, I don't. Um, you know, I don't really know. I, my, I think my husband's worked there for about probably 15 years, and it's been there at least that long. Um, but it's not a very old parish. Um, I think the parish, oh, my husband's right in the other room, but I don't want to leave you guys to ask him. But I think it was a parish that might have been built in the late 50s. And I only know that because of the architecture. It's the same exact, there are a few uh, churches in the Diocese of Rockville Center that are built exactly the same. And the church I grew up in, St. Martha's in Uniondale is exactly the same inside. Um, and that was built in the late 50s. So I think that, um, you know, the church has only been there that long, the parish. Uh, but the mission statement probably developed, I would guess, after the time of the Second Vatican Council in those years, when mission statements became something, uh, particularly in the late 80s, 90s. Uh, that would be my guess, but I, that's a great question, and I'll double check it, okay? I'll make sure I yeah, find I, out. I I am. Yeah, it's, it's really beautifully done, and it really struck me. I was actually standing outside waiting to go to the restroom when I saw it. I never noticed it before, but I was just kind of hanging out in the vestibule when I, and I saw it. But anyway, I wanted to show you 
um, that that's an idea, I think, you know? And like anyway. it has the corporal works and the spiritual works next to it, just in case yes. you know, like, what they are. Exactly, exactly, because some people could look at it and say, well, what are they? So yeah. I think it was a brilliant, a brilliant idea. Uh, but I'll get more information on that. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so what we're uh, about tonight is um, we're going to look at key dimensions of Catholic parishes, studying congregations. Uh, this is just a photo of one of the books on your, re, um, uh, on your uh, recommended reading. Um, and it's edited by Nancy Ammerman and other people. But Nancy Ammerman is a, uh, just a little background, a sociologist. Um, and uh, the book was compiled really um, from the lens of not only theology, but sociology. And we'll get a little bit into that. But uh, I learned about this book when I went out to Collegeville, uh, the monastery at Collegeville, the Benedictine monastery. I went to a conference in 2011, and Nancy Ammerman was one of the first speakers. And that's where I learned of this book. And um, I, whenever I hear a speaker that I like, I immediately Google them and find out what have they written or edited and I immediately got the book and it's been very helpful to me in my teaching of courses such as this one. But uh, we'll be looking at some of the things from this book, particularly from uh, chapter one, which is, um, as you'll see in a few minutes, it's about the theology uh, in the congregation, discovering and doing, written by Robert Schreeder, who is a um, well-known theologian as well and uh, chapter six is about leadership and the study of congregations and that really uh is more of what we're going to talk about next week uh but i just wanted to point that out but just to step back for a moment um last week um as i said uh we uh discussed the relationship between evangelization mission and vision and how they all relate to, how those three things relate to parish life. And if you remember, we looked at evangelization as a process that really is meant to foster ongoing conversion, ongoing and lifelong conversion. That I mentioned that um, in the Catholic Church, we don't look at conversion as a one-time event. Uh, we might have moments that are very powerful in our life, or we might refer to our, our time of conversion, but it, we are called to change and be transformed every single day. So it, we, we look at conversion as something that happens over and over and over again. That we, um, with every Eucharist, we. The Eucharist in itself is meant to change us, meant to transform us. And we should keep that in mind um, every time that we participate in the celebration of the Eucharist, that I need to be different now. Uh, Jesus uh, Christ has entered into my interior. What is he trying to show me, tell me, uh, give meaning to whatever's going on in my life? And um, how is he trying to change me? Uh, that's that's the goal of the Christian life to always uh, see what God is 
um, calling us to. So that's how we need to look at uh, this process. And also remember that evangelization begins with the parish, everybody. Uh, as Pope Francis said, and some of you mentioned last week, and uh, the key word here would be hospitality. How do we treat um, all people that uh, come? That we need to be a welcoming community. And we did mention that without this, all efforts of evangelization would be very weak um, if we didn't have this um, hospitable attitude because evangelization must reflect Jesus's preaching of the kingdom of God, which as you know from your scripture study, that was primary, that Jesus was teaching that God is in our midst and God offers his presence to all people, no exceptions. Um, it's our part, we need to respond to it. But the fact is, is that God is always offering his presence to us. God is so kind and loving. It's so, so amazing. It really is. But with this in mind, connecting this now to our study of, uh, our, of pastoral ministry, um, with this in mind, this concept, a parish can set its priorities. That was the, that's the whole point of what we went into last week, talking about mission and vision. And I know the feedback, I got some feedback from some of you, uh, and I really am delighted at how, um, how so many of the things we talked about last week sparked such interest um, in you. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, but keep in mind that evangelization happens uh, and again, this came up from you last week, that it happens with the interplay of world, family, and church. That it doesn't only happen in the church, but it happens in our families and it happens in the world, or it should. So there's that real interplay. But our focus is narrow. Uh, we are looking at it, how uh, does it play out in, in the parish situation. Because how it plays out in the parish situation, I think it's gonna re be reflected in families. And if it's reflected in how families live in the world, then it's going to affect the world. Um, I used to have an expression I would use with confirmation candidates, you know, young kids. Um, and we go through the whole two year process and I, I would finally say to them, you know, if you take all of this seriously, you have the power to change the world one person at a time. And, and I do believe that, you know, I really do. Uh, so there's this real interplay from parish family world, um, so, but for now, you know, we're going to zoom in and focus on what we can do in the parish, um, particularly in regard to, as we were talking last week, mission and vision. Um, again, still stepping back before we move on, remembering that the mission of the church is the gospel and the vision is reflected, um, first of all, in all of the documents of the church, 
and uh, to create uh, and all, you know, like that uh, statement that we just had, had up there. I mean, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy is really what Jesus taught us. It's how, you know, what we're called to do uh, for our neighbor and for others. Uh, so this this mission statement is focusing on how how we help others as well. So that's um, very clear. Um, what we're going to get at uh, with this concept of studying congregations. Now, just to be clear, congregation is more a word. I mean, we use it as Catholics, uh, but it, it is more of a word we hear uh, with our Protestant brothers and sisters. The Catholic Church, we, um, especially in the liturgy documents, we use the word assembly you know, the gathered assembly, but it all means the same thing. It means a gathering of people. And we're going to look at what that means in a few moments. But the mission and the vision of a parish is grounded in the life of the congregation, in the life of the gathered community, in the life of the assembly. And the mission statement really should engage the reality of the parish's life. And um, I don't know a lot about Our Lady of Mercy Parish. Um, I go there uh, once or twice a year. I've only been going there recently because I need to be my husband's driver for a while. But uh, this statement, I am certain that was put together because it really, um, uh, it really focused on the reality of this particular parish. So um, where the mission comes from who we are, the gospel, uh, mission statements uh, might focus on different aspects of the gospel, all right? So uh, we're going to, it's so far so good, makes sense. That was really all a review to uh, set up what we're going to talk about tonight, these key dimensions of Catholic parishes. The, the studying of congregations. And this is really looking at context or setting. And we need to take into consideration culture, which is very important. And just look at our class. We have very, I am sure, if we were to study every one of your parishes, it would be very diverse. Um, and that's what each one of you uh, needs to look at um, uh, your own parish. You might even consider writing an integration paper about this. It's up to you. I throw it out as a suggestion. Really uh, taking what um, we have on the notes tonight and perhaps looking at your own parish. But um, um, again, remember, we're looking at this through the eyes um, of and the minds of sociologists. Uh, people who study groups of, of people. Um, and it really gives us a, a way to better understand our parish if we, if we look at it this way, all right? So here are some important insights of these key dimensions of parishes. Um, first of all, as I said before, congregations are the gathered community and they're 
congregations are very important. Um, it's, you know, looking at it through the lens of, um, for example, Lumen Gentium, the document on the church, the dogmatic constitution on the church. The congregation, the assembly is the body of Christ. I mean, there's nothing more important than that. There, it's the heart of all our religious history, if you will. And it's really, when we study a congregation, it's really showing us how individuals, as well as the gathered community, how we are experiencing our religion, our, our faith, you see? So the impulse to gather is an ancient tradition. Um, you know, I mean, we can go back before with the, the um, even before the early Christians, our roots are in Judaism and Jewish people gathered. They gathered to remember. Take, for example, the Passover, the Exodus. They, that's their uh, most important um, feast day. And they gathered to remember. And we inherited that, that concept of gathering. So the early Christians gathered to remember Jesus Christ. So this concept of gathering, this impulse, if you will, of gathering is very ancient. And it is part of virtually all religious traditions. And it is certainly part of American history. Um, and we'll look at some of these, but let me just flip here for a minute. Um, I just want to go here. For example, in the United States, we had the Puritans who gathered in Massachusetts, the Anglicans in Virginia, Roman Catholics originally in Maryland, Baptists in Rhode Island, Quakers in Pennsylvania, Mormons in Utah. So you see, as I said, this impulse to gather is really part of our American history as well. And I, I, I find it a fascinating, a fascinating concept as well. Um, let's see. Um, Okay, uh, I will get back to, I want to go back to this, sorry, sorry for that. Um, I just want to talk about here, I don't know, I think my slides got mixed up. Hold on one second. Now I know, this was, forgive me, um, it's been a long day. I started very early today. This is just some of the things we're going to discuss as we move on. We're gonna talk about the impact of church buildings themselves, the impact of education programs, um, theology in the congregation, and ways to study a parish. This is more or less an outline, so bear with me. All right. So um, how sociologists view congregations primarily as the gathered community, as I said. They look at it as these congregations as being the heart of religious history and how we experience our religion. Okay, so according to sociologists, religious gatherings are essential to the health of the United States. 
I really, um, I have to, I tend personally to agree with this statement. Um, and I think that during this time of pandemic, when um, particularly in the beginning, a year ago, when we stopped gathering, that it, I think it affected us. Um, and, you know, you, every now and then you do hear the effects of the pandemic are X, Y, and Z. But I think when we couldn't gather, it was very detrimental to who we are. And, um, you know, it's right here that these gatherings are essential to the health of the United States. And another interesting fact that the writers of this book bring up, that more people belong to a religious congregation than any other volunteer, quote unquote, um, organization. Because um, when you really think about it, no, you know, um, we feel called to be part of our, our churches, our parishes, but it really, we are volunteering in a sense. If, if that makes sense to you. Um, but uh, I find it very interesting that uh, in studies that are more secular studies, that uh, they have found that more people belong to religious congregations. Uh, that's um, uplifting to me. Um, this also is uh, very inspirational, I think. Faith communities influence both the community and the individual. Now, um, how does it do that? Well, certainly, and you can chime in here if you have other thoughts, but um, we certainly as individuals are influenced by the support of values. Uh, by coming to class at St. Joseph's Seminary, we're with people who are very supportive of our values. Well, it's the same, should be the same thing in our parishes, that we are gathering week after week with people who share the same values. Uh, let me throw that out for, uh, for your observations. How do you think uh, faith communities influence both communities and individuals? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, Doctor, could I just say something about that that comment, that last bullet point about uh, shared what you said about shared values? Yes, please, Bill. Mm -hmm. It's something. Um, it's something that happened to me in my own experience in my parish as I look back about 25 years ago. Uh, one of the first areas I was involved in was was parish outreach, and I was literally called. I got a tap from somebody I had met in church who said. Would you come to this meeting? I think you might be good for parish outreach. And um, the interesting thing about this group, and forgive me if I've said this before. In this no, class, no, go ahead. But the interesting thing about this group was, uh, to this day, I'm friendly with, still very close and very friendly. We would, the leader of our outreach at the time was just brilliant at uh, bringing us together into conversation um, about about our faith, about uh, the things that were important to us, and sort of moving us in a, in a direction. And what was so interesting as I look back is, is that we all shared these values, but to this day, I, I don't know what the politics of the individuals are in this group. 
um, it, it never got into those kinds of things because right. we had we all shared the value of being for the other, working with the poor, the hungry, the marginalized, mm -hmm. and and we just were such a close group um, as a result of that. And uh, and this is why I, I couldn't agree more um, with with these with these statements, and I couldn't agree more that so much goodness for the individual mm -hmm. as well as for the parish community but especially for the individual comes out of these uh out of ministry work and these gatherings inside of parishes and i will say i was not a believer of this uh -huh. back when um i used to kind of scoff at small communities right small i remember communities. that you you've said that yeah and, um it's just uh just anyway that's that's no that's that's beautiful and you bring up a very important point uh made me think of when um it made me think that when you said the leader of the group what he did for you it's using pope francis if you remember a quote that i used i think it was last week that he calls us to uh beyond mere administration because you could go to a meeting like that it would be all business you know what I mean? But but it was more than that. And that was true. And this is why I'm such a believer in these communities now, mm -hmm. because we came together for a specific reason. And it was a woman, a woman named Bridget D. Pasquale was her name. Um, and she she was just brilliant that she would spend the first 15, 20 minutes on board business and business uh -huh. and outreach. And so, but then she would move us into these, what became, you know, one and two hour meeting conversations mm -hmm. where we would go into the depth of the issues that really were the reasons we were motivated to do what we were doing. Exactly. And that's what a parish meeting, in my mind, a good parish meeting should look like. You know, we, should, we have to take care of the business, but we have to take care of our souls, too, because that's the only way we're going to influence other people. And it's going to go into our family and then to the world and have that interplay from parish to family to world, It's a great way to, it's a great setting to integrate the gospel. It's a great setting to, to actually what she would do for us is, is give us instances of revelation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that, that, those are kind of things we wound up, you know, pondering and this thing. And uh, sure. it's a great setting for that, um, to do those kinds of things. And also, now the, the the support of people that share your values, in my personal experiences, has has been really amazing. Actually, because um, I've been involved in a, a, well, both in the Knights of Columbus for many years, but then more recently, I formed a men's group in, in, in my parish. And the men that come out are some of them, or many of them, I would say, uh -huh. are men that really aren't that involved in parish life. But when they when they see that there is something going on, a lot of times people feel isolated. They may be mm -hmm. faithful Christians and they come to church, but they have an isolation about them because they live in the secular world. And you know, yeah. so they keep their opinions to themselves and their feelings. And maybe they think they're a little bit odd because of the way they feel as opposed to what they see the, the world feels. And then when you have uh, some type of a, a, an organization or a group uh, where they're invited and they find that they're not alone and that they are supported by others who share the same values, 
it, it, it does something to them. It, it, it lights them on fire somehow. Now they want to become more active and they feel better about themselves yes. and about their thought processes and it brings them closer to the church and to the parish and then they become more involved and it's sort of a snowballing effect, mm -hmm. this support that you're referring to. That's such That's a great well. point, Paul. I think that is just so spot on to my own experience. Yes, absolutely. You have to make them feel welcome too. I think it's the main point. Just uh, you get them to come back. If you just have a meeting in the dark or a closed door meeting, and you tell them whatever you want, it's not going to work. You exactly. have to make them feel the need and the, and. Rob, you're, you're, you're going in and out. Your volume, your um, audio is going in and out. I got some of what you said. That's okay. But you're absolutely right. People need to feel welcome. I mean, yeah. I, I've heard horror stories where people were not welcome into a certain group in a parish. That is absolutely um, terrible. Um, hospitality, and we need to make people feel welcome. That they, these can't become cliques. Our parish organization should not become, you know, private cliques, uh, so to speak. Dr. Eschenauer? Um, certainly making people feel welcome. Yes, Anthony. Is that yeah. you, Anthony? Yeah. So, I, you know, I had, a, had an experience of what you're just talking about where um, I, when I came back to the church, uh, there were, you know, several different factions within the church, like cliques, um, you know, just like junior high school, and uh, which was quite uncomfortable for me, which actually pushed me away again. But, I, you know, I think the whole thing with faith communities, and I, and I echo everybody, everybody's sentiment, um, is that, you know, they really bring the communities together, whether it's within the church or outside the church. And if it's outside the church, then that's a, you know, that's a major process, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a bit, you know, thing to, to be able to evangelize, um, and bring people into the church, um, especially with services such as outreach, you know, you got to have empathy and altruism. If you don't have that, you're not going to get people back, especially now right. with the pandemic, you know, people are afraid to come back and yeah. there's got to be a way that you are empathetic with their, you know, with their fears and you're altruistic where you are, you know, creating a nurturing environment that you can bring these people back. And, you know, that's, that's a major influence to, you know, to, to help bring people back into the faith. Uh, it was for me. That's, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's a whole other story which and, but that's exactly what it should be that everybody should feel that was my point before when i used the word hospitality which is a word we throw around you know we think of hospitality ministers the people that greet us at the door but everybody is a hospitality minister or they should be everybody yeah you know? right um yeah and should be welcoming and never um you know, give anybody that that impression that they are not welcome. Yeah, I think uh, that's in, in. I think that's overlooked also in 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 many parishes where, you know, um, when after the after the priest and you know all the people on the altar process out, and you're going out the 
out the back door and you're walking down the steps, if a lot of times, and I've seen this, where, you know, the, the celebrant, in the, you know, doesn't go to the back of the church. He just walks out, goes through the sacristy and leaves. And sometimes, you know, maybe there's a Eucharistic minister or somebody standing in the back of the church that's maybe greeting people, mostly their friends, but there's nobody there. You kind of, you know, so you, it's like going to class. It's like after the class, you walk out the door, you go home, everything's good. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's an excellent point. In one parish that I worked in, uh, my last parish that I worked in, um, the uh, priests made, particularly the priests and the deacons, made a concerted effort and it was a church that had the main entrance uh, and three, two side doors and then a side door towards the sanctuary area. And to, to your point, every Sunday, the pastor made sure that his priests and deacons, everybody was assigned a door that after every mass they had to be at. Right. That's that's perfect. It was it was brilliant and it made people it made a difference in people's lives. They people would comment because they felt that um, that there was care, that they were cared for right. uh, by the, the clergy of their parish. Right. Or, and and not only even the lay ministers like I was there every Sunday after one particular mass. Um, I was more present during the week, but people appreciated that that so much that um, that people were there who cared for them. So you make an excellent point, Doctor Kirshner. Yes, it's Chris. Yeah, hi, so, Chris. Um, two points. I, I, I love the comments. Like this, this is the part that hits me the most. Um, Good. Me first too. of all, we formed a we formed a men's group, at, at, and and that's a challenge, right? Because you can make announcements, no one shows up. And what we really found was you have to make personal invitations. You literally yourself, as you said, everyone has to evangelize. So I think that's been covered. But to the point of hospitality, um, there's this magical day that exists in churches and organizations that everyone loves to talk about, but no one can identify this. Um, they should do this. They should do that. And until we focus on ourselves and each of us do that. So I absolutely agree clergy should be in the back of the church. I did. It annoys me when they don't. Our church, we're blessed with that. Um, uh, but it's really up to us to look around for the strangers in the room and introduce ourselves and, and to help and help. And I know everyone, I'm preaching to the biggest choir in the room right. when I'm talking about this classroom. Yeah. But, but I, I, that's the only time I don't call people out, but I do bring it up when I hear that they should. They, I say, right. we are they. Yeah. And, we, that's, and I think that's part of evangelization, but I think that's a key component of us in our parishes that we need to lead by example and show people that that um that and by the way that leads to other ministries that's how we've gotten people into the men's group that's how we've gotten um uh other ministries to grow is by just reaching out and asking and saying hey would you be would you join us would you be part that's when pe- people are afraid to volunteer sometimes they don't know people they don't feel comfortable invitation is the most effective way to bring people into ministry uh, not announcement, and I know I've said this before, not announcements from the altar, not a, in bulletin, personal invitation. In my experience of over 22 years, that's the most effective 
way to personally invite somebody. And doctor, you said this before, but uh -huh. to Chris's point, what this is all about is about training. It, it's about it's about training and education and push and, and, and getting these and the implementation of these kinds of ideas on a parish level yes. that's that's because we're you know we're having these conversations to your point chris right we're all yep. saying things and it's really you know like it should be us but it's also to go back to my point about bridget the woman from parish outreach in my group uh, in my parish was that she was she was a very well-educated person she was a sophisticated person she was a very sophisticated group leader and this is something that uh, you know, in all of our ministries, that this is this is the kind of thing we're working at in Brooklyn right. um, to, to create these partnerships between what we do in the communication side and what happens actually on the parish side because mm -hmm. it's so important. Um, somebody said that earlier about <laughs> you know, but it is such a Catholic thing to be not welcoming. Uh, you know, we have this yeah. big line in front of my parish. That yeah. says all are welcome, and I remember standing in front of it once with my pastor, and I said, "You know, I wish that was really true." And wow. he said to me, "What do yeah. you mean?" And I said, "What are you kidding? We are such an unwelcoming group." Yep. <laughs> no, I know, and you see, that's the point. You bring up a good point, Bill, about uh, education and training, and that's one of the points of the aims of the, a class like this that yeah. you will all be able to take this to somebody else. You see, you're taking it back to your parishes. And in some way, shape, or form, even if it's the smallest way, you're going to change something ministerially. Dr. Yes, Lucas. Uh, I hear what everybody is saying, that we are all called to welcome everybody and be more welcoming. But unfortunately, we all share different charism. And yes. not everybody has that personality. I think if you have it, you know, you should be encouraged to use it. But not everybody is outgoing like that, that's gonna meet a perfect stranger and say, hey, listen, can you help us out on this one? I mean, I do it on my church, like Chris said, we're, we're preaching to the choir here. But we have to realize that, that there's a lot of shy Catholics too. Oh, well, I used to be one of them. <laughs> Before I was involved with the right of Christian initiation of adults. I was shy, and I wouldn't dare talk to a stranger, but I knew through that ministry I had to. But you know what? Your point is very well taken, and we talked about this early on. Everybody has a different gift, but everybody can offer a smile. Everybody can be kind. Smile, <laughs> you know? But what we're talking about here is really parish leadership. It has to start there to create a, an environment that is welcoming. That's exactly and right. There, there are going to be people who want to come in and walk out and not talk to anybody. And you know what? But um, as par parish leadership, they can be there to say good morning after mass or before mass. Um, and that doesn't mean that everybody is going to um, take on that role, you know, because you're, you're right. Everybody does have their gifts. But as parish leadership, we, we need to explore these types of things. And as I said, and I'm not kidding, 
And I, I remember saying this in a class with seminarians, and they, I said I used to be shy, and they all burst out laughing. Um, because I'm far, I think I'm far from shy, but I can remember the minute that I was confronted when I was newly minted in ministry, and I was in a room in the rectory basement, and a group of strangers were in front of me, and I was working with a team of initiation ministers, but I knew that I had to go over and sit down next to a stranger and talk to them. So it, so it really just drew something out of me that I didn't know I had within me. Um, so sometimes people don't realize, and part of parish leadership, the idea of training you all to be leaders is, is that we help people to discover their gifts. And somebody um, may not realize they have certain gifts. Um, so the point here is, and your point is well taken, but my point is that as parish leaders, we need to help people to understand this. And in general, we need to be evangelizing, welcoming congregations. Uh, do, and that is just following the mission of the gospel basically. Right. Every, every parish ha is different. And yes. in our town, there's two parishes, uh, one on each side of the town. And I know people who have gone to one, you know, tried that church and they don't like that for whatever reason. And then they come to a different, you know, our church. And they come to our gym over on our side. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say the other church. I know. I knew that. I knew that because I know you guys. Yeah, but but it's true. They said they find some either either pastor or the homilies are better or whatever. They have all these, so it's not you know you, you can't take personal offense to it because you know you you can't attract everybody. And, and we had some people leave because they because our uh, town didn't have Latin masses and they go now to a different uh, place. Yeah, and, and again, everything. And that's that's perfectly fine. Um, I don't belong to the parish I live in geographically. I, I go out of my town to the parish that I'm registered yeah, in yeah. and attend. And you know. like you said before, it's it's what people will find their niche and, and, and what they like about the parish and they'll stick with it. Mm -hmm. And the good news is they go there the rest of their life most of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but in, yeah, go ahead, who's that? Yeah, but I think no, that no, you, no. oh, sorry. Not a dictatorship because some church they have a dictator who could, who could try to control everybody. We don't go by control. We need a leader who can direct us, who can direct them, not a dictator. Yeah, Rock, did I hear you say something about culture? Yes. Yes, yeah. say, say it again because that's important. The culture has to be leader. Not a dictatorship. Some they are dictators who try to tell they have people do what they want them. Not organization to work together, but a dictator. We don't have to be a dictator. Yes, um, as you're going to see, the setting, what this sociologist referred to, setting is is meaning the culture is is going to be very important and that goes to the point that parishes are different and they look different and they should but the general principle 
um, to be evangelizing and welcoming, a stand uh, for, for all uh, parishes, uh, particularly, again, focusing in on parish leadership. But I think in general, I think you'd all have to agree that no matter what, there is a support for the, the values in our, in our parish communities that for the most part, perhaps not 100%, but in general, that we are going to find people that we can, um, we have the shared um, values with. That may not be the case in say our place of business uh, or in our, um, perhaps in a circle of, of in social circles. Um, you know, we, we may not find that. I can remember when I first was an uh, MA student in the seminary in Huntington, uh, my education prior to that was at a university uh, that was um, just a secular university. And I can remember that the first day of class at the seminary, I thought, wow, everybody here shares in, in my love for this. You know, and everybody here, we have the, the, this uh, shared opportunity to um, talk to people about these things that you don't have everywhere. And I, I think that that is the case um, for the most part in parishes. Uh, but I think what's important here, and Bill brought it up in that last statement, is that we could be so influenced individually, but how we are influenced is going to flow out um, into the community. If, if, we are, um, if we are moved by a particular situation um, that we are in, as Bill described in his involvement with outreach, that's going to flow into other areas, you know? And if you think about it, um, if people have an experience in a small group that is good and healthy and holy, um, when they come together in the larger group, that larger group is going to be affected um, somehow. Um, so I think that um, it is a true statement, and I think that uh, those of you who shared experience, uh, you know, that you... Um, certainly would agree with it. Can I just add something? I was just, of no, course. About yeah. 20, I'm thinking it's probably almost 25 years ago that I moved to my parish. Uh-huh. Our pastor at the time, who was a Monsignor but now retired, you know, when they started broadcasting these on the cable news channels, the town board meetings, mm -hmm. he would go to these town board meetings, you know, in his, you know, dressed as clergy. Right. And I was always struck by that because I've never seen it since he left our parish. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that that was a really good way to integrate the parish into the community because not that he would go there to cause trouble. No. He was there as an observer. He and then, yeah, and that's for the community. Right, exactly. But also would know what's going on in the community. Yes. Because he was there. And he wasn't sending someone else. He was going himself. He was a Monsignor. Yeah. And I was pretty impressed. And I had forgotten about that until I heard this discussion right now. And I think that's something that we could do more of. Wow. No, that you bring up a really good point. 
Uh, I once worked with a pastor who's now a bishop down in South Carolina, but he had a dog and he walked his dog around the community and he got to talk to people. And he did that purposely uh, twice a day. He walked through the neighborhoods and, and got to talk to all kinds of people, even non-Catholic people. And the other thing that he did, which always impressed me, if he, for example, uh, he would go bring his car to be serviced and have to leave it, he would always go back on the bus. And some people would say, well, Father, we'll pick you up. And he said, no, I need to be on the bus with people. You know, and, that he, and he made a real decision to do those type of things, you know. But I, I, so you bring up a really, really good point that sometimes we have to reach beyond the parish, you know, and that could have an effect on the parish. I'll give you one example from, and I just thought of this as well. In the last parish I worked in, um, we had a lot of parent education because I believe that that was key to what we were doing with children. And um, we had a parent meeting one night uh, with first grade parents. And that meant if there were over 200 people. It was a very large parish. But anyway, the next day I got a phone call from a woman and she said, I heard about this parent meeting. How do I get to come? So I said, do you mind if I ask where you heard about it? She said, I was serving pizza at school, the public school. I'm volunteering serving lunch. And the other mothers were talking about this parent meeting you had at the parish. I was like, come on in. And it was January. I didn't care. I invited her in, let her child come in. See, you see, so those mothers, without even realizing it, were evangelizing in the public school because they were talking about what happened at a meeting at the church. So you see, you, you can, you can go beyond. That That's great, Doug. Thanks for that. Thanks. That's great. So we'll have more Anybody else want to say anything? Yes, I could. Who's that? I'm sorry, what ladies first? Oh, Victoria, go ahead. Oh, and Steven. Alrighty, um, this video is not going to work. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Alrighty. So now that you mentioned that, Dr. Eschenhauer, something similar happened before the bath. So the Bible study that I've been part of for two years now. Uh-huh walking with purpose oh, and yeah. i re yes i remember finding out about it because first of all she's very famous she's like a, a speaker that i've heard several times in the seek conferences and the focus mm -hmm. um and i've heard about her bible study and i remember thinking like oh these bible studies don't happen in places like new york like this is like Wyoming or Ohio or something of that nature like this is not going to happen around here and then when I found out that it was here it was actually in Bronxville um I also like I remember looking into the bible study looking into what it was that she was offering and one of her key things was just that it was like four mothers 
and that along with this bible study you had to include like babysitting like that was a big big thing you know she said like she's a mom of 10 so she said like this is something that she's been working on for 10 years in the middle of nap time in the middle of this in the middle of that and she's like and it's meant for like those women at those points in their mm-hmm. life where they feel like their whole life is for someone else whether yes. and whether it be the husband things of that nature so when i found out that they were doing this this was in saint joseph's i was going to saint peter saint paul and saint ursula um, so I'm like, oh my gosh, this is perfect for my moms with the five kids. I'm like, finally, like they'll get a break. They'll have someone watching the kids. They'll have, you know, like something happening like that. And then in the first meeting, they said that it wasn't included. And I'm like, that's like a requirement for this Bible study, you know? So I'm like, no, like, like they just, they never got to attend because it's so hard to find somebody you know, for five kids, even if you're spreading them around. Um, And um, like, I remember thinking like, that could have been such a different experience, you know, for those, even the moms of just one kids, for the kids of my catechism class, because it's just like, okay, the dad's not home yet. Like, I can't leave my seven-year-old. Right. And I even suggested like, what about we put them in the classroom next door or something like that? And we can alternate like one person you know, one person just switching out, but no, it was it wasn't given that option. And even though it's still a very fruitful, very um, lively Bible study, yes, I've heard of it. Yes, yes. Let's say in my um, in my group, the women who attended are no longer like moms of anyone young. You know, mm-hmm. kids are in college or they're they're professionals already. So I'm like, I like, I don't think it's, it's like she meant it. Like she meant it to be for, yes. Yeah. Well, that's something, you know, with safe environment policies and everything with the babysitting issue that can be worked on to do it appropriately, you know, according to the guidelines in a particular diocese, you know? Yeah, that it would open it up to more, to more people. Because yeah. I feel like that ties into our class right there. Absolutely. Me going into a church, I look for like a young woman. And if there's a baby, I'm like, okay, that's hashtag goals. You know, <laughs> that's what I, what I want. Or if I see multiple kids, I'm like, hashtag future, future goals. You of know, course. Of course. <laughs> in mass, we're already thinking the same way. So. Exactly. And we, yes, it's very important, particularly for young adults, young parents. You know, excellent, Stephen Morganti. Uh, um, I'll be brief. Um, That's sh- okay. We're good. When you speak about impact of church buildings, I'm curious about that. I was, okay. I was born in, uh, I was baptized in the Immaculate Conception in the Bronx, and I remember when we left that parish when I was probably about six years old. I was pretty angry that we were leaving my church. New <laughs> York town, and I went to my first mass at what we call the stone church i was happy again because i had my stained glass windows and my beautiful structure but i gotta tell you my parish st patrick's in yorktown Mm -hmm. i've been there basically my entire life um i really credit that parish with as and give them a lot of credit for my faith 
for the increase in my faith and my growth as much as I give my parents. I mean, that parish has been phenomenal, you know, from from the readers to the priests to the music ministry. I once mentioned this in a speech to the parish when I was trustee. We were doing a fundraising campaign and I had to do speeches at a bunch of masses. And I was just mentioning the impact the parish had on my life from everything. The, the music ministry, the priests, the readers, um, the nocturnal adoration society, the midnight, the midnight runs, the hospitality, the men's ministry. I mean, it's just endless. And the impact it's had, I, you know, I don't care what you say, there's nobody more shy than me. And, you know, I, I would have told you I, you were crazy if, if you had told me back in eighth grade where I'd be today, you know, in, my, in, in, my, in the growth and development of my faith. And I really credit the parish that I've been at. And I give them a, as much credit as I do my own parents, who did a good job, mm-hmm. did a very good job. But my parish was right there. They're neck and neck. Yeah. You know? So it's really been phenomenal. Um, and, and Stephen, you give it an example of a parish that has had a vision and has never let go of the vision, obviously, you know, uh, that didn't settle for mediocrity. Because mm-hmm. uh, very often that's what happens. And we just want to just, uh, and particularly when uh, times are hard, um, uh, they just want to be concerned with uh, maintenance. But as Pope Francis says in the joy of the gospel, we can't settle for that. And it's harder to have that mission and that vision and to keep keep it going. It's harder, but in the long run, that's when the parish is going to have an impact on, on your life. Uh, when I was raising my children, uh, the parish that we belonged to, where my husband used to work here in Glen Cove on Long Island, and uh, we got married there, my children went to school there, but my point of this is, it was a very close, um, uh, a very vibrant, wonderful parish community where people cared for each other. And um, back in 1987, um, my mother died. And she didn't live in that parish, but she came to visit us on the weekends. So she came to mass with me um, there. So she loved it there. And the pastor knew her really well because she was there almost every weekend. But my point of this is when she died, she had it in writing that she wanted her funeral at St. Patrick's and Glen Cove. And I had three small children at the time. My brother had two children. My sister had two children. They didn't live here. They lived elsewhere. And this is, this is my point. My mother was a grandmother who was very close to her grandchildren. My three children coped the best with her death. And it took me a while to figure it out, but I came to the conclusion that they did better because of the parish community we belonged to. I, I really felt that, and I remember saying it out loud uh, to, to my husband, to my family, uh, to my sister, my brother, and they said, you know, you're right. You had, you had a, a unique kind of support at that time that my brother and sister didn't have. 
um, in their parishes. So, so you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's why all this energy that we're putting into, um, you know, all of your formation, all of your coursework, um, what we're doing in this course alone is, um, you know, this, uh, we talked about theological uh, reflection, but the whole course is really theological reflection on what it means to be a parish minister and what it means to really um, try to help create parishes that have impact. And that impact is, in a nutshell, is to help people to recognize the fact that God is active and present in their life and God loves them. I mean, that's the, you know, at a very basic level, that's the message. And we need to put a lot of energy into it. And here we have it. This whole idea of church buildings do have an impact. Um, they call people beyond themselves, you know? And, and here I have our, you know, here's our campus. I mean, all you have to do is drive up here. And I know it's not a church, but it is in a sense, all right? And, you know, it calls us beyond ourselves when we look at this. This is the highest point in Yonkers. Those of you who live nearby, you know that. I did not know that. But you can see it from everywhere. You know, when you come off the Bronx River Parkway, there it is, you know? Um, and it does, it, no matter who we are, it calls us beyond. I remember talking to a Jewish woman uh, when I first started to work here, somebody on Long Island, she said, oh, you work in Yonkers? I grew up in Yonkers. She said, where do you work? And I said, St. Joseph's Seminary. She said, I always wondered what that was, but it had an impression on her because she could see it. Uh, and recently I was talking to a gentleman who also grew up in Eastchester and he knew of it. And it had an impression on him. And he's, he was, he's Jewish as well, this friend of ours. But again, and here it is, the, the, this, just the, the environment here, the, the stained glass windows, as, as um, uh, Stephen mentioned, the steeple, it, it calls us beyond. So sociologists have recognized this. And this is why churches are built the way they are built. Hey, can, I, can I just interject something for a minute? Of course. Um, of course. I don't know if it's so early, but, you know, my son, Matthew, he's 23. He came to um, our candidacy mass. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Matt is always challenging me. How do we know Luther's not right? All this stuff. And, sure. and uh, he's a history teacher. And when he walked into that chapel after the mass, uh -huh. He fell in love with of it. Of course. I didn't know where the tile came from. What was the art of the scene? He wants to know the history behind it. I said, all right, I'll try to push that somebody who could take you through all that. I mean, but it really moved him. The mass moved him, but just the coming there really did something to him. And I was really grateful for that. I just wanted to share yeah, that. But that's very true. Uh, and just uh, another quick story. When I was in parish life, um, there was a young boy, an eighth grader. Um, his mother was Jewish. 
She's actually the mother who grew up in Yonkers. The father was a lapsed Catholic, and his brother had um, had his bar mitzvah. And it was time for, for his bar mitzvah. But anyway, my point here is they went on vacation to Rome, and they visited certainly the churches. And when they got back home, um, and they were talking about his uh, very near approaching bar mitzvah, he said, don't we have churches like we saw in Rome here where we live? And the father said, well, um, yeah, um, we could find one. And they did, and they found, I have it here, St. Agnes Cathedral. They found it, they lived right nearby, and the father brought it from here. And that little boy said, I don't want a bar mitzvah. I want to go to that church. You see the impression? that the church in Rome had on him. So you're absolutely right. Uh, and that's the whole point here. I, 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 um, there was a guy who told me, you know, the churches are so, you know, spectacular and everything. Why don't they sell everything and give it to the poor? Because isn't that the mission? And I've heard that story many, many times. People have said that. And the reality is, if they did that, then there would be no place to belong to other than a tent in the, in the you know, the woods. That, so you, you have to have some yeah. people again. That's a really good point. And um, last year, I went to a lecture done by our own Dr. Uh, Jennifer Donaldson uh, about beauty and worship and beauty and the church. And that's, she used that statement that people say, oh, if the church would sell everything. Well, even if we did sell everything, we couldn't feed the poor of the world, number one. And the whole, the whole thing is, is that there is a point to this beauty and that, that's, that it has an impact and it's important. And this is, and you see here, I've included here, we have our school. Uh, I, this is Huntington. This is the chapel in Huntington, a seminary of Immaculate Conception. And I included Brooklyn. Thank you very much. I recognize it. <laughs> that's the co-cathedral. That's where uh, I go every day to work. Yep, yeah, yeah, it's so beautiful there. But I tried to include it all. And then I, I couldn't leave out, uh, I forget where this is, but it doesn't matter. But here's Rockville Center. But I'm um, sorry I don't have Bridgeport. Oh, my gosh. This is the first class where I had you from Bridgeport. I, I'll have to get a picture of. Uh, <laughs> we weren't going to say anything. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I have to be inclusive. Um, but um, the thing is, is that the point is that this beauty is important. It's for the honor and glory of God, and it takes us beyond ourselves. That's, that's the, whole, the whole issue of like steeples like this, that it raises us up. And that's the impact that um, churches, church buildings can have. Uh, and it, yes. I have heard before um, that churches were built, um, yes, to transform us and to like point to heaven and its beauty. Mm -hmm. Also because not everyone was literate or could understand the language. Correct. So it was just like, it was meant to make you feel like 
you belong there and you can find something that could attract you, whether it be a color, whether it be an image, whether it be lighting, whether it be some something of that nature. Like it was just like something for everyone. That's, that's exactly right. Now, if you were to see this up close, this isn't a very good picture. I took it with my phone. But this is like the mysteries of following Christ to the cross. Wow. And if you look here, right here, this is the Blessed Mother. And this image is her pointing us toward him. So this uh, Reredos, if you will, tells a story. And you're exactly right. And originally, um, it was for people who couldn't read, you know, that in churches we had these pictures, if you will, and images to teach people. Uh, and this is just the ceiling, but uh, Bill, you could speak to this. All those images of Mary. Yeah, you talk about you talk about welcoming all, and that's exactly why they were put there. There are on on the sides, both sides of the church, in the ceilings, mm -hmm. uh, are are images of the Blessed Mother um, in uh, in in different in forms different, of in different, different languages. Yes. In different languages, yes. uh, so they are varying images, and the exact point of that is to make it uh, is to make it welcoming to all. The, the mm -hmm. Brooklyn as the diocese of immigrants. Yes. Where we say mass in 44 languages every week. Um, is that was the intent here when this became the co-cathedral? Yes. In Basilica is our pro-cathedral. Yes. Uh, in the co-cathedral a full renovation was done on this building about six or seven years ago correct literally in crumbling it was in it was in rubble and yeah. uh, it was fully brought back the vision of bishop demarzio uh, because the co-cathedral is about a quarter mile from the barclay center atlantic terminal and what's now become um a whole new uh revitalized area of brooklyn and that was the idea behind this um, it's, uh, and it's, it, it is, uh, it's a spectacular sight when you come into this parish. We, I, I'm sorry, to this building, we do have people who come and tour it all the time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I've been there several times. My son has an apartment a block away and his Presbyterian wife drags him there every Christmas Eve. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, Bill, to your point, and I'm very much aware of the restoration that was done. My husband was a consultant with the restoration of the organ, oh. but so I'm very familiar with it. But um, people, I have heard the criticism of, yes. of, of this, but yes. it, it was vitally important. And we can never, we should never have that kind of an attitude um, toward it, because this is the work of our hands. You know, and when we think back, uh, like the history of the church where that I was referring to where I got married, um, it's it was built mostly by Irish immigrants and uh, the stones that were brought via boat, you know, and people went down to the docks and dragged up the mountain because the church is on a hill, dragged up the hill to build. That's the work of people's hands. And that's the way we need to view all of this and this is about stewardship then for, we had a recent uh renovation restoration uh 
on this chapel and on many areas of St. Joseph's a few years ago. And it cost a lot of money. And, but the thing is, this is what stewardship means. We're celebrating the 125th anniversary that, um, this coming um, summer of our seminary, of our school. Um, we wanted to be there another 125 years for people then. So that's true stewardship, that we care enough, not just that we have it, but that people 100 years from now will have this. Um, so that's why we need to take care of the beauty of these buildings so that they will affect people's faith life for years to come. Uh, that's the whole point that we're getting at here. Um, if I could And they just... have extraordinary works of art as well. Um, we're doing a project now where we are shooting all around the country in cathedrals all around the country and shooting what we call in the TV business the assets internally of these of these buildings, um, but you know, you know, the whole idea behind art is as you look at art, you're 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 pondering it. What does it say to you? And to your, the point that we were making earlier about the stained glass windows, something I only recently learned, is that the reason they don't have words on them is that they are there to tell the stories of the Bible for the people 150. 125 years ago who were illiterate exactly um, so they actually that that's why they're so expressive but the same can be true uh, can, can be said from so many other uh, works of art literally works of art that are around uh, when you see some of the in Brooklyn especially when you see some of the uh, some of the altars some of the uh, some of the stonework that's done um, and I could just tell you one other quick story about why these things need to the, the hands that went into work to, to do these things we're building a building right next door, and what a nightmare to build a building in, in Brooklyn. But the, the worst part of it was, as we were excavating for the for the lower floors, we were we were hitting rocks that were like the size of Volkswagens, and I I, I was thinking, wow, how did how did the people that built this church in 1912, how were they getting these? just the, the amount of work that had to go into this, uh, into these buildings mm -hmm. hundred years ago and what they must have gone through to build them. Such, such love, when you think about it, you know, really such care and such love for the honor and glory of God. You know, that's something that we need to restore, that, that, that concept uh, in people uh, when we talk about stewardship, because that's exactly what it means. You know that we need to have that care and that love. Uh, when I um, and then I'll give you a break. But when and, I, and by the way, Doctor, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute for the rest of the class because everybody I'm sure is sick of hearing me. No, we love hearing you, Bill. Sick of hearing But whenever and I think you've all been in this building. I know you have been in this building, and you notice how clean it is. That's the first thing that impressed me the first day I ever went there when I was interviewed for my position. But I watch sometimes the men and women that clean this building. And I watched them do it with such love and dedication that it, it just just moves my heart um, to, to see it. Um, that it's almost, uh, there's one man that I'm thinking in particular, but I almost feel like he makes it a prayer that he's cleaning the sacred place. 
um, which, and that's, you know, that's how we should do all things is my point here. Um, it's, um, it's wonderful. And it's, again, it's all for the honor and glory of God. And it's up to us as parish leaders, and that's what this course is about, as, as pastoral ministers to, to honor this and to keep this vision alive and to know that every single thing, uh, this is hospitality, you know, that we care so much about how this building is kept, you know, the, how the flowers are arranged. That, that's a symbol of hospitality that we care enough you know let's let me say one more thing if you're having a dinner party at your house okay i used to do this a lot more i don't do it anymore but the care that would go into it from the tablecloth to fresh flowers perhaps to the how the table was set that's the sign that i care for everybody coming into my home you see what i mean it's the same thing here it's the same thing here. And how, the, what this building looks like, you know, and how it's cared for and how it's decorated. You know, you could read it. There's a whole document on, on church art and environment that, that talks about this, how important it is to the faith life of, of, of all Catholic people. The art and environment is extremely important extremely so that being said it was extremely important to restore this building to more than its original grandeur uh, so that people could come and be impacted by god's love and care and mercy for his people so think about that let's take a break it's almost 8 30 I'll see you back here at 8.45, the latest. That's enough time to go get a little snack, right? Okay, great. So it, had, it has an, an impact, you know? Uh, there's a real sign of uh, God's presence among us, uh, our, our buildings um, as well. You know, they do mean something. We can't just say, oh, it's a building. You know, it's symbolic of, of, you know, being, you know, as little children, I remember always being taught, we're going to God's house, you know? Um, now we know we're more sophisticated now. We know that we are the church, we are the body of Christ. But there's something about that very profound about that place where the body of Christ gathers. And that's why the church in her wisdom has a document on art and environment and Catholic worship, because it is important that we are, we care for it. And, and that we, uh, the art and environment is of, of the best quality and best taste. Um, and also this brings into culture, you know, um, the church where I uh, that I belong to now is um, uh, an Italian parish, and there must if there's there must be a hundred statues in it, but it's just beautiful in my mind. But the pe and it's very much respected that the people 
that built this church had such devotion to the saints, you know? I mean, there are these little alcoves, um, in the, and it's a small church, but in one alcove that happens to be my favorite, I mean, they're lined up, and I mean this with such um, uh, reverence and awe, but you'll Padre Pio, St. Rita, St. Teresa, the Blessed Mother, uh, Lady of um, Fatima, like all just lined up uh, with candles in front of them. And the people like to watch the people go every Sunday before and after mass are in these alcoves. And now with the pandemic, they're waiting for people to go out so they can go in and light a candle. But uh, it really, really um, impresses me so much uh, that the, the love and the devotion um, that went into uh, building that church and, and creating that, you know, uh, for people. And it's very much appreciated even today, you know. So, so different, my point of saying that is that um, different churches are reflective of the culture as well, you know. And um, again, I think if we did a study of everybody's parish in this class, it would look uh, perhaps different, uh, but all the same, the same goal in mind. You know, succeeding, Dr. Eschenhauer. You see how in the seminary the seating is facing each other instead of the altar. Is that for seminaries or? That's like that's monastic. It's called choir choir seating, because when, for example, when the offices prayed, it's a dialogue between mm -hmm. one side and the other. So if you were to go in a, to a monastery. It would be that way. So that's monastic seating. Okay. Yeah. That's a great, great observation because a lot of people wonder mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. 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 And the seating in um, other churches, for example, like um, uh, whether it's, uh, if you were to go to the seminary in Huntington, it's the same, monastic. But here, the seating and at St. Agnes Cathedral, the seating is what would be um, reminiscent of the basilicas in Rome. Uh, and the basilica was originally a um, secular building. But when the house church, people originally in the uh, early Christian church, they gathered in people's homes. But then the, um, you know, the Christian community grew especially by the fourth century when it became legal to be Christian. So they had to like borrow the, the buildings, uh, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the buildings for the authorities, the Roman authorities. And so they went and they gathered there. So um, our churches were built according to the, the, the Roman basilicas, where we had, you know, the seating that faced front. You know, and now it's interesting that if you go to a church that was built after the Second Vatican Council very often, they're more built in the round or in a semicircle. So that the body of Christ that we are all focused on the altar, but we can all see each other as well. So it's, it's very uh, interesting to do a study of um, church.
church environment. My bachelor's degree is in fine arts. And I did my final thesis for that degree on the chapel in, Douglas, in the Douglaston Seminary. Um, the, now the Douglas, the House of Formation, of Conception House of Formation, because it was built um, shortly after the Second Vatican Council, and it is very much in the round, um, with beautiful uh, windows. And I did an artistic study of that um, of that space. Um, so it is a very interesting. Um, document if you're ever interested to look at art and environment and catholic worship so that's great you see the the buildings themselves lead us to uh, education programs but we we saw the buildings themselves the art um uh, and architecture and everything in the environment teaches us and, and again calls us beyond but now just to shift into the whole idea, again, looking from the lens of the sociologist, the study of congregations, um, they say that educational programs transmit knowledges, knowledge of faith, but very importantly, they transmit values. So, this knowledge of faith is the telling of the story. Notice the capital, the Christian story, the story of Christ. But it also is about the education leading to giving us an identity, which I really think is really important. That all, what I like to call the educational ministry of the church, um, really helps to form our identity in who we are as the people of God. Um, also, it promotes what we were pretty much talking about before, that whole idea of community solidarity, where we can share these common values, we care for each other, and that would be what we would call apostolic witness. But, you know, this is what we need to educate people toward, toward all of this, um, which is very, very important in our parishes as well. Um, I teach a whole course as an elective on the educational ministry of the church. So I realized uh, today when I was just reviewing the notes that this course is very much like Father O'Neill's course that teaches you a little bit about a lot of things um, that you'll study in other courses. This course is very much the same because every topic that we cover in a week, you could teach a whole course on, you know, um, it really is. So I'm just trying to uh, uh, give you highlight um, points and then refer you to resources. Uh, and then hopefully at the end, you know, we you can bring it all together. But again, looking at, you know, through the lens of the sociologists, they talk about this religious significance of the congregation. So there is really a significance of this gathering, this assembly, as we would call it, this gathering of the body of believers of the baptized the body of christ 
coming together because this is where we worship God at its highest level. We come together. We can all pray at home. We can pray in our rooms, but I, we can watch it on TV. But I think if anything, the pandemic taught us, it is not the same as being there. And it is certainly not um, this liturgically, if we're watching mass, we are not um, participating in the celebration. We're basically watching mass, it's different. Um, but during the pandemic, it was wonderful to have it um, when our churches were in lockdown. But nothing replaces that coming together where we worship God. It's where we proclaim sacred scripture, you know, uh, where we hear at a very deep level, the living word um, is proclaimed to us, very important. And for us as Roman Catholics, it's where we celebrate sacraments, um, the, the signs and the symbols of God's presence um, among us. You know, in and through the sacraments is where we encounter Jesus Christ. Um, so, uh, though, so there's very deep religious um, significance um, to our gatherings, our congregations, our assemblies, etc. So, this is uh, really something for you to think about. Um, why study your parish? Um, you know, and I hope that you'll all, you'll all, you know, take everything that we've said uh, tonight and talked about and just look at your own parish. So for you could consider your own parish and um, explore, you know, this operative sense of mission and identity, even if you don't have an official mission statement and i know some of you last week at the end of class stayed after and mentioned how that really touched you and moved you to uh, want to do that in a parish but even if you don't have an official one you could think about it that well what is our mission you want to definitely think about your cultural demographics as i mentioned before you know, and the, just the diversity that we have here in our class. Look at your own parish. Look at the cultural demographics, because that's going to be very important in how you do things. You know, you have to understand the culture. It's like um, the church I was talking about that I go to. People criticize it. You know, all, all those statues. But there's an understanding of why there's all those statues because we're understanding the culture of the people who built that church. So that's very important. Um, looking at pastoral staff, Do you, is there a pastoral staff? You know, um, today, uh, may, mostly because of finances and very often there are not pastoral staffs clergy are struggling to run parishes on their own. And as we talked about earlier on, it's not the ideal. The ideal is to have um, the pastor at the center with people 
uh, collaborating with him. So we need to look at that um, and study that. What, who, who are the leaders in our parish that are, 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 are um, uh, putting our mission, so to speak, our vision in motion? So it's important. Is it clergy? Is it just clergy? Does pastoral staff mean just clergy? Or does it mean clergy and non-clergy? Does it mean various ministries that serve the parish community? So we need, we need to look at it with a critical eye um, and, and really study it. And what I want to say here that studying parish um, is a theological task. It, it, really, it, it, it really is. And the first chapter of that book that I mentioned, uh, Studying Congregations, the very first chapter is talking about the theology that's involved in this gathering, that it is basically a theological task to study. Um, and for the sake of um, pastoral theology, that we are um, talking about in this class, we need to understand the concrete situation in which we minister. So we, we should want to study our parish. And by that, I mean, we wanna understand it, you know? Uh, and we wanna look at its strengths and its weaknesses. Because every parish, no matter how great it is, um, we need to be able to look at it critically and say, well, maybe there are areas where we could be better, all right? So we want to understand the concrete situation in which we are in, and we want to ask questions such as this. What our parish says about faith in God? You know, what does it say when you observe it? What would it say? How do members treat each other? We certainly uh, talked about that when we were talking about hospitality and evangelization. How do we treat outsiders? I mean, some of you alluded to that as well. Um, how do we make decisions? In other words, who's making the decisions? Just one person or is there collaborative effort? Do we reach out? Um, and, and solicit, uh, like have a town meeting, like I mentioned uh, last week, uh, those kinds of things. Very importantly, I think a question to ask is, what do we want to pass on to the next generation? What do we want them to know about the history of this parish? One of the reasons why, and this is just an aside, that I go to the, I um, have registered in the particular parish that I'm in now, uh, this uh, Italian parish, if you will. It's the parish where um, my grandchildren are part of, and my daughter-in-law grew up there, and her father grew up there, and her grandfather grew up there. And now her children are growing up there. So I thought to myself, because it's not far from where my home, um, this is the parish that I want to uh, support because I want it to be there. I want to pass it on to my granddaughters, you see? So that was my personal decision that I made. So what do we want to pass on to the next generation? 
uh, those two little girls go into that church and the first thing they notice is all the statues and they are in um, amazement and talk about them and remember it and different murals on the wall. So it does have an impression. So yeah, I want that passed on to the next generation. I don't want somebody to come in and take it all away, you know? And then the other thing is, what do we want to share with new members? You know, when we talk about the right of Christian initiation of adults further on in the course, you know, and some of you are familiar with that, but you know, what is it about our parish, a story that we want to share with um, these new members, these new uh, soon to be baptized people? So these are all theological questions. Um, so here is what I referred to in this book again, uh, chapter one uh, by Robert Schreeder, wonderful um, theologian. But in chapter one, he, he says this, how your congregation understands itself and how it decides to move forward is informed by the way the parish sees God at work. That's really, in my mind, I chose it because I think it is a very profound statement. I mentioned to you before that um, the one of the aims of, of uh, uh, as pastoral ministers, one of the main messages that we want to get across is that God is active and present in your life. So, so this has to do with, well, how do we inform people of that, you know, in our parishes? That's, to me, that's uh, the ultimate thing. How your congregation understands itself and how it decides to move forward. You see, that's mission and that's vision, right? To move forward to in, is, um, is informed by the way we see God at work. So we need to ask ourselves, how do we see God at work in our parish? These to me are loaded questions, profound uh, questions, um, and they are theological questions. This will make a good thesis for somebody someday maybe. Um, so uh, here we go again, um, uh, quoting from the same chapter on the theology of congregation. What makes a congregation the special places they are is that they are focused on God in whom they live, move, and have their being. Their members congregate or assemble to remember how God has acted in the history of the world and in their own lives. Again, a theological statement and very, very pertinent to what we're talking about here in this study of a congregation or an assembly. Okay, you with me? You good? So, reasons to study your parish. You want to, again, ask the hard questions. Is the parish focused on God? I think I remember saying in this class, you know, when I was in the parish, it was at the time where we had um, the sexual abuse scandal, safe environment programs were at the top of the list. 
of what we had to do and all of this developed and I'm not it's very important I taught safe environment classes for the Diocese of Rockville Center for years very important but I can remember at the time thinking to myself and actually saying out loud my position here is becoming less and less focused on Jesus Christ <laughs> you know because it became um, about more about administration um, and that's a mistake administration is vitally important but how in the midst of all of that do we stay focused on God and this is a hard question for pastors very often because there are so many administrative tasks but how do they um, keep all that balanced to keep the parish focused on God so that that's a big question to ask do members gather to remember God acted in history and now acts in our light? This is something that is very, very important that we help people realize that when they are hearing sacred scripture proclaimed, they are hearing what God did in the past, but what he is doing for us now. Do we make that a reality in our parishes? That's important, that when the word is proclaimed, that God is speaking to our situation right now. And how do, we, how do we help people to see that? Does the parish show us how to see the world from a particular perspective? This, to me, is really important. Because um, as a Catholic Christian, it is really my hope and my prayer every day that I will see things differently. And that can be from the littlest worry that I might have when I wake up tomorrow morning to the biggest catastrophe, like a pandemic or what have you. Um, but how does the church, in and through its liturgy, for example, help us to see the world from a different perspective. Now, as a liturgist, let me speak to that. Liturgy, um, and I've written about this, liturgy should not exist in isolation. Liturgy is celebrated for the world, for the, for the good of the world, for the intention of the world. Um, and it should, Every time, like I said before, the Eucharist is meant to transform us, the celebration of the Eucharist, that we are sent forth and we are different. And the key here, what I'm getting at, what I want to focus on is, but does it help me to view things differently? For example, when I hear the news, am I listening to it differently? When I read a newspaper, do I read it differently? etc. Do I choose to do particular things um, through the lens of my faith or not choose to do something or watch something? I can remember just speaking about TV. I can remember people were talking about something on Netflix or I don't know. I'm not a big TV fan. There's certain shows that I like, but I mostly like um, PBS things or whatever. But anyway, um, if we didn't have, a, in other words, if there was no TV in the house, I'd be okay with it, okay? 
But somebody, everybody was talking about this great show that was on Netflix. So my husband said, oh, so-and-so was saying this is good. Let's put it on. Two minutes into it, I was uncomfortable with it. And I just said, I don't want to watch this. I made a decision because uh, I don't want to view the world that way. So I don't want to watch it. I don't want to waste my time. So in other words, what I'm getting at here, we, we can make conscious decisions based on our world view that is influenced or should be influenced by our Catholic faith. And again, I've said it before, it's not our faith is here and life is here. It, it needs to come together. That's called conversion when we put it together. So it should influence what we watch or what we don't watch, what we read and what we don't read. So does our parish support that um, and show us how to see the world from a particular perspective? Uh, certainly during the pandemic, I would have to say that when masses were live streamed from my parish, that I really felt that the priests did a wonderful job to help us to continue to be people of hope in the midst of uh, this uh, world pandemic. And that's uh, what that um, leads to. And then finally, does the parish help us to come to term with the world in which we live? You know, uh, and again, I could use the pandemic uh, for an example from now and forever. Um, but is our parish helping us to come to terms with it? You know, or with anything, even uh, take if somebody is sick or a death in your family, like I talked about my mother, um, George shared with us his experience of his father's passing. Um, is our parish supporting that and helping us to come in terms with these things that happen in the world? Uh, one of the things um, in the last parish I worked in uh, during 9-11, uh, we lost 28 people in the World Trade Center. And the parish, particularly the, um, we had two nuns that worked in the parish uh, outreach. Uh, we called it social ministry. They worked tirelessly to help the parish come to terms with this terrible tragedy in, in our world that was very close to home. And um, to this day, they work with those families. It wasn't just for a week, a month, a year. It, it was meant to be forever. We are going to be with you and for you, for you and your families um, on this. So, it so does our parish do things like that to help people come to terms with the world in which we live? Hard questions, you think? Any thoughts? The biggest thought I have is if you get transferred to a new parish, you have to start this whole practice all over again. Uh, the analysis of the parish. Yeah, um, but it's even a bigger challenge to step by step introduce it into wherever you are as well. You know, step by step and prioritize. What do we want to look at? What do, what's our goal here as you go through each one of these things that we talked about, you know? 
Um, and certainly, you know, this is like an overall study, but on the path, that's great, Jim, because it helps me to clarify. In our parish setting, wherever we are, and if we have any influence as leaders, you, you don't want to just say, oh, we have to do all of this because we want to be great and perfect and all that. No, the best in my experience in parish life for over 20 years is you prioritize and you look at, well, what do I want to bring up? You know, what do I think, you know, what would I bring to the pastor, for example, uh, to perhaps we need to look at? You know, but not definitely not to come on strong and to try to do everything at once, because then I don't think it's very productive. But if you take one thing um, and you make it the focus, perhaps for a year, you know, um, that you want to make, um, you want to help. Let's say for this year, we're going to help the parish comes to terms with living in a world a pandemic, you know. That could, that could be, and how, how are we gonna deal with this? And how are we gonna help people who are unemployed because of it, you know? Uh, people uh, who are hungry uh, and, and our food uh, pantries are empty. Well, what, what are we gonna do about that? You know, because that was the case. Um, food pantries were closed, people were out of work and they couldn't um, get to the churches. One of the first things in, the, in where I go to church, there's two parishes run by the Augustinian canons. And one of them has a very large, um, is very multicultural, let me put it that way. It's very diverse. The other one where I usually go to mass is primarily an Italian parish. But anyway, in the other one, which is a larger parish that I originally used to belong to where I got married, and the very first thing um, as soon as they could open the doors was they made sure that the pantry was stopped because there were so many people in that community that needed the help. And that was one of the very first things. He made it a priority. And the school happened to close and they had a building. And uh, the pastor actually very creatively is utilizing that building to help the poor in the community in every way. There's a thrift shop, there's the food pantry, and I forget the third thing that he just opened. I, I can't remember, but it's called Caritas, and it's basically uh, ministering to those in need. Um, and it and it was the, um, the pandemic that uh, made him come to that. So he obviously asked the question uh, here. So, uh, and this is a parish that's the second oldest parish in the Diocese of Rockville Center. So it's not new, but they're doing new things because of the, the genius of, of one person that puts it out there and talks about it every Sunday. Uh, this is our goal. This is what we're going to do. And, and people um, in a community they that's the one thing people are always happy to do is service and and help and and bring bags of food and make sure and uh, all we have to do is invite and ask and and it, and it got done and it's a beautiful thing so 
the thing is, oh, we don't have too much time left, but we're almost going to wrap it up. So the parish itself, the congregation, this brief study, and if you're ever really interested, and I said, if you want to write one of your papers on this, it's a beautiful thing, but is the ultimate place for theological reflection. Go back to your notes when we talked about your own personal theological reflection. But you can do this on a parish level, you know? And that means looking at, you know, hard questions. Um, it, it might mean looking at how uh, parish money is spent. You know, I always say a budget, a parish budget is a theological statement. And you've probably heard me say it before. I think I've said it in this class. But looking at where the money is spent, you know, is important. You know, it's, it's setting uh, priorities of, of, of what we think is um, what's important for, for God's work to be done in our parish. So it is the ultimate place for theological reflection. Um, congregations are about mission or action and knowledge of God goes beyond information. It's about a relationship with God that transforms us and challenges us to look at our lives and calls us to live more deeply, as we have said, as intentional disciples. Um, in other words, the congregation or the parish is where we find meaning and identity. So here it is up here, ways to study your parish, all right? You want to look at the setting, the neighborhood. You know, where is it? You know, is it in a, is it in a suburban area? Is it in a city? It's going to be very different. You know, city parishes, if you live in Manhattan, are very different. Uh, than a parish that is, um, uh, you know, in a neighborhood, for example. Uh, the par Again, using an example, the parish that I had go to Mass is not even on a main highway. It's on a side street. And most of the people walk there. I don't. I live six miles from there. But the people that go to Mass, they are walking there. They're all in the neighborhood, you know. So it's, you look at the setting. Where is it located? You look at the culture. As I said before, it's so important. And um, it's going to be unique to your parish. You look at the history. You look at the identity. That's what that means. The culture is looking at the history, the identity. Um, again, I use the example of this church that I go to. The history is Italian. You know, the identity is still very much, even though there are people of all different nationalities that go there, the identity is, uh, all you have to do is look at the environment. Uh, there was, my son got married there, and a friend of mine who's married to a man who grew up in Sicily, and they came to the church, and he walked in the church and he said, this looks just like a church in Sicily, <laughs> you know? So that was the identity, you know, and, and he felt it. He felt like he was home in his country there. So that, that's what that means. You need to look at the, res the resources. And resources means that you look at the members. You look at the people. People are resources. 
you know, I when and um, uh, Jim and Chris in my mentoring thesis seminar, you've heard me say it. Students are our richest resource. You know, we learn the most from you all. Well, in a parish, you learn from the members. They're a rich resource. You're also looking at the money. You know, we've got to look at the collections. You know, it takes money to preach the gospel. People don't understand that, especially now. We live in a consumer society where people give money because they get something. So people are not going to church because of the pandemic. They're not giving money to the church. Collections are down. Churches are suffering. People don't understand that the church has to pay the lighting bill, the heating bill, etc. You see? So we've got to look at the money. That's very important. If we look at our own household and what it takes to run a household, well, we've got to look at, well, what does it take to run this whole parish, to keep it all going, to pay salaries, etc., to people? So that's important. The buildings, and we talked about that before, and I'm talking about maintenance and the stewardship um, involved around the buildings. You know, what do we have? Do we have just a church building? Do we have a church and a school? Do we have a church, a school, a parish hall, etc.? Uh, some churches have multiple buildings, some don't. But we have to look at what we have and how do we use these buildings. You know, like the example of the pastor who's now using this empty school building to provide services for the needy of the community. That's a wonderful use of the building, right? And then the spiritual energy, you know, is so important. That's a resource. You know, what is the spiritual energy of this parish? Is it, eh? is it mediocre or is it vibrant, you know? So we need to, uh, this is how we want to be able to critically look at our parish. And the process, uh, the general dynamic, in other words, patterns of relationship, uh, families, um, family systems, uh, the ministries, are there a lot of ministries? Are there a lot of people involved in ministries? And, you know, in my experience, I've, I've heard all different things, you know, about the, this general dynamic. Um, and this, the uh, patterns of relationship, uh, by that I mean what I talked about before, is there a strong sense of community and care for the church? The last parish I worked for, um, there was such a strong sense of community in the in the village, and that was brought to the church. That there was such a strong sense and care for their parish church. Um, very strong patterns of relationship within there. And then uh, family systems are all going to be different, you know. Um, is it older population? Is it young married couples? You know, is it um, couples with a lot of children or no children or all of that? You, you want to look at it. And then the idea of ministry, are there ministries? Uh, do we have people involved in the different ministries in our church? Let me try to get through the slides uh, uh, quickly here. Um, so studying parishes, it moves us from practice, theory, to practice. That'll make sense in a minute. 
but this this is a concept of what we talked about the first week of the idea of pastoral theology or practical theology that we look at what we're doing and then we look at the theory or the theology okay and then that leads us to hopefully better practice you see so this this would be the beginning stage of forming a mission statement to study your parish it will lead to probably a better mission statement and again i repeat it because to me it makes so much sense this is doing theological reflection on a parish level and that's why i did that with you early on so that personally you would know how to do theological reflection that you could do it on a um on a different level uh in the parish and i cite here and it's brought up in the book studying congregation but tom thomas Groom, i don't know if some any of you are familiar with him he's a religious educator He's a professor at Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. I happen to have met him on several occasions, and he's written a lot of books on catechesis and parish life. And his one book that I love so much is called Education for Life. Um, and you can kind of take that to mean different things. But it, it actually means not for life, meaning uh, length of time, but for life you know, for vibrancy of your life. But anyway, he has a very clear praxis or practice of how to do this. And this is what he, he refers to, naming the present. In other words, the experience. Look at your parish. Look at it now. Study it. Describe the history. Find out about the history. Bring it into dialogue with the present, okay? And then that will lead to a renewed mission or vision. In other words, we just can't settle for where we are now. We've got to be renewed. Renewal is always the call that we are renewed over and over and over again, personally and as a, um, as a parish as well. And the result will be a living community. Those are Tom Groom's words, not mine. But they are, um, uh, they are certainly true words. And they are words of a process that is very clear to how, how do you look at what um, you are doing in your, with your, in your ministry, in your parish. You know? And one way to do this is perhaps to start small. If you're, you have a leadership position for a particular ministry, just look at that ministry and implement all of those questions to that one ministry. And then that could grow to then looking at the whole, the whole thing. You know, uh, that just occurred to me that you could do that as well and possibly renew a ministry. Um, I mean, I did that in a parish with initiation ministry. And when we get to that section, I'll talk about it. Uh, but I had that opportunity to look at one particular ministry in a parish and how it was being done and to gradually bring it, uh, move it forward to be more in line with what is the vision of the church? What does the church say? What does the ritual say? Not what is somebody's opinion of how we should do this, you see? So that's another way of doing it. 
study a, mi a ministry rather than studying the whole thing. You know that that thought just occurred to me now that you could you could all you could do that as well. So with all of this in mind, we're next time we're going to take everything we learned so far and move it forward and talk about leadership in ministry and practices of faith. Uh, um, and then, well, the second integration paper, I gave you all an extension to St. Patrick's Day in honor of St. Patrick, all right? And you pray to him to intercede for you, so the 17th. And, but pa pastoral leadership could be, and I, I have taught it as a whole course, but I am gonna highlight important things about um, pastoral leadership and how we um, form people for it in the best way possible using the vision of the church. Final thoughts, concerns, questions? Yeah, think yes. thing about uh, the stained glass. Okay. Years ago, my pastor, when he was, uh, after he was reassigned, he asked a bunch of us who had pickup trucks to help him move. And he brought uh -huh. us to uh, St. Catetaria in Grangeville. And it's a beautiful church. It's about 15 years old now. And he said, all the women want to get married there. When you see it, you, know, you drive along and you get an open clearing and out of nowhere, just, you see this huge church appearing there. Mm -hmm. My point is they were dismantling a, a church in the Bronx, okay? And they hold daily mass in the side chapel because it's a lot cheaper to heat the small right. chapel. Right? Uh -huh. It's one thing to read. You know, we read about Jesus walking on the water. But when you see him walking on the water in stained glass, it just, it, you know, it, it comes to life. Absolutely. Yeah. So beautiful. Absolutely. Um, and stained glass was designed to uh, be an educational tool for people. Right, because people didn't read back then. That's right. They weren't educated. That's right. And those, the stained glass tells the story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something to be preserved. Um, and that's, again, that's part of stewardship, that we make sure that the stained glass is there for people 100 years from now. But to hand it on to future generations. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. Yep. Anybody else? You're all good? All right. It's been a long day, right? All right. So that being said, for the honor and glory of God, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All right, have a wonderful week, and I look forward to meeting you again. Okay, you too. Thank you. All right, God bless you, everybody. Good night. Have a good night. God bless. Good night. 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 Thank you. Donna, can I steal this and just uh, bring it into work? And uh, <laughs> it's amazing how many touch Donna. points. Donna.